0: Six years ago, my mother was visiting me in Washington, D.C., where I lived at the time, and she stopped at a drugstore to pick up some last-minute things she needed for her visit. And I'm imagining she probably needed like a travel-sized toothpaste and maybe some Band-Aids, maybe like a little thing of Cheez-Its to keep her blood sugar up. But it was Christmas time, and my mom is the reigning queen of the art of the stocking stuffer. If there was a reality show about that, she would be leading that reality show. So she went to the seasonal aisle as well. You know the aisle that I'm talking about? It's on the next slide. (laughs) This is the aisle that, in just a couple of weeks, is going to be full of bunny ears and egg-dyeing kits and... Then it will shortly thereafter be switched over to snorkels and beach bags. And in the month of October, it's full of glittery witches' hats and plastic jack-o'-lantern pumpkins for holding candy. Right now, it's filled with uh, pink and red chocolate boxes shaped like hearts. And um, one of my favorite things that this aisle always, always has is, like, candles and... Um, Tastefully pictured picture frames and like memory phone slippers that are all sort of meant to look generic enough that it looks like you put some thought into a gift <laughs> that you are getting for someone when actually you forgot to get them a gift. Those are the um, the things that I love about that aisle. So you know you know that aisle. My mom spent some time in this aisle. We're we're sort of drugstore addicts in my family. We love the seasonal aisle in particular. So she picked up what I imagine was every single Christmas-themed item that was there. Um, if I remember correctly, it was the year of the red and green flashing shoelaces um, that she wore to our Christmas Eve worship service when I was serving at the congregation that I was serving at the time. Um, every year she gets me gimmicky, like necklaces and... Uh, and earrings. I've had little neckla- little earrings that are shaped like, um, you know, wrapped Christmas packages, and a lot of necklaces that light up like Christmas lights. She probably got me some socks that look like Santa Claus's boots. She definitely bought me some ornaments. And when she got to my apartment, we laughed and we sort of giddily tried on all of the jewelry, and we put the ornaments on whatever potted plant was serving as my Christmas tree that year. And she handed me one more present. This large, giant, like, bulk family size bag of red Twizzlers. You love Twizzlers, she exclaimed. And my face was like... <laughs> <laughs> because I don't love Twizzlers at all. I, or at least I don't anymore. When I was a kid and candy was a rarity in my parents' healthy house, my father would sometimes sneak home some licorice. He liked black licorice, which I could never stomach. But without many other candy options available to me, I settled for the red licorice when he brought it home and I learned to appreciate red Twizzlers as any form of candy. There may have been some time when I liked them enough to buy them on my own, but they were never at the top of my candy list. You know what I mean? Do you have your candy list? Twizzlers are down here. My mother, however, hates licorice. So Twizzlers are like at the very bottom of her candy list. So I think that the fact that I used to eat them sometimes with my dad stuck in her memory, whether it was because she thought licorice was so gross or because she thought it was sweet that my dad and I shared a fondness for gross licorice. I don't know. But it's stuck in her memory for 20 years, at least 20 for 20 years, and it stuck powerfully enough that when she saw this giant bag of Twizzlers in the Christmas aisle of CVS, she bought it for me on a generous impulse, even though I'm certain I have not told her I like licorice since I was in elementary school. So how many of you have had some moment like this in your life? Friends, loved ones, family members get you gifts, and you you try to immediately turn your I don't like this face into a thank you so much face. Many of us have someone in our lives who, because they love us and because they're generous, they give us a gift that we maybe once loved but have long since discarded. And though we see it so clearly when somebody else is giving us that bag of Twizzlers, it's just so clear to us that that's not our thing. We probably, do, we probably all do the exact same thing to other people, right? I, in the process of writing this sermon, for example, I began thinking about how I might Twizzler my mom. I learned in my teens what kind of earrings my mother liked. She likes blue earrings, she likes them large, and she likes them on posts. She does not like dangly earrings. Or at least that's what I learned when I was a teenager. And I have bought her a pair of earrings fitting that description, at least one every year for the last 20 years. (laughs) Have I asked her recently if that's still her style? No, of course I haven't. And now that I'm thinking about it, she actually wears dangly earrings these days when they're not the ones that I've gotten for her. And she wears colors that are other than blue at this point in her life. I probably pinned down her taste in earrings in the nineties and she pinned down my taste in candy in the eighties. And we're both wildly out of touch now because it's hard to let people in our lives change, right? Talking about Gifts that come from a place of love and generosity. This is the sweetest way that this particular challenge plays out in our lives. At least with red Twizzlers or big blue posted earrings, my mother and I are trying to show love for one another. With these gifts, we're trying to say, I see you. That I, I know your quirks and I honor your individuality. It's not the same as just getting a candle from the seasonal aisle at CVS. And we might miss the mark, but the impulse is still a good one. And hey, I still ate some of those Twizzlers and she still wears those earrings that I buy for her, which I continue to buy for her every year. So good morning, I'm Abby. It's good to be with you. I, I don't like Twizzlers, but my pronouns are she and her, and I serve the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia in Center City, and it's just a wonderful gift to be out here with you and experiencing worship with you this morning. Changing ourselves is hard work, but allowing the people we love to change is much harder. Nearly all of us who've come out of the closet at some point as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, nearly all of us have had this really difficult experience of someone we love not allowing us to change Maybe one of you had a grandmother who kept suggesting that all you needed was a nice girl to settle down with even though she knew you were gay. Or maybe your father told you it was just a phase when you came out. Or maybe your brother still calls you his sister, refusing to call you he even though you came out as a trans man many years ago. So science fiction writer, or many might say theologian, Octavia Butler, wrote in her book Parable of the Sower, All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. So Butler may say the only lasting truth is change, and Buddhists may say life is impermanence. Greek philosopher, Heraclitus of Ephesus would say, you can never step in the same river twice. And process theologians would say that all of existence is constantly becoming, not being, but becoming. That who each of us are at the beginning of a sentence is different from who we are at the end of the sentence. And as we change, God changes with us. Change is a central force of all of our lives. And yet it still remains so hard for us to cope with change, right? I mean, not always. I'm here guest preaching. This is different from my congregation. Um, I get to wear jeans when I'm here at your congregation. For those of you who haven't been to First Unitarian Church, it's the—I think we're the oldest Unitarian church in this kind of region, and you guys are the youngest. So we have our sanctuary is probably 120 years old. It's completely surrounded by stained glass. It's giant. Um, I wear a robe and I get to hide behind a giant pulpit, um, and uh, it's fun to be here and get to wear jeans. So that that kind of change is fun for me. I don't know how how much fun it is for you. You guys are used to Ken and Lee being up here, and I know Ken's on sabbatical now. Um, I tried to make it a little bit easier for you because Lee is one of my style icons. So I tried to dress like Lee as much as possible today. <laughs> Lee is like the queen of the little booties, even though she's got like a different kind of boot on right now. Um, and and the, the skinny jeans and the sweater, I just, I'm trying to channel her even though it's only half of her haircut. Um, <laughs> but it's probably weird for you guys to have a guest preacher in your pulpit. It's, it's, change is weird. Sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's hard. This is not the hardest kind of change. The kinds of changes that are harder are when we notice that our bodies are aging and we yearn to be able to go up the stairs without saying, ouch, because our knees are hurting. Or the kinds of changes where our kids are growing up so fast and we yearn to just hold them like we did when they were babies but they don't fit in our arms anymore. Or the kinds of changes where we're growing as partners in a relationship, but we're terrified that our growth is gonna mean that we don't work in that relationship anymore or that our partner doesn't work with us. We may stay stuck in our ways even when we know that it's holding us back. We may nurse grudges even when we miss the people who made us so angry. And societal change is at a scale even beyond changing ourselves or allowing others to change. Our whole culture is structured so that white people nearly always receive privileges and people of color nearly always face some kind of obvious or hidden oppression when they're simply journeying through life. We structure our policies and our laws so that people born with wealth need to do little or nothing to preserve or grow their wealth while people born into poverty are stuck there no matter how hard they try to climb out. And that's not even beginning to talk about war or violence. Change is hard. And yet we know, I know that this congregation knows that transformation is one of the most joyous and healing and life-giving experiences that we'll ever know. Change is hard, and yet for our society to truly put love and justice and peace at its center, we must create transformation beyond what any of us has ever experienced. Change is hard. And sometimes the hardest part of creating change is not the change itself, but creating the environment that allows that change to stick. So I want to tell a story of a marriage of my friend, I'll call her Etta, and her marriage fell apart. And when it fell apart, she talked about how crazy she felt. In her normal day-to-day life, she was comfortable, but felt depressed. She felt like she was in a rut and she didn't know how to get out of it. She didn't think that the rut was too bad. You know, sure, her marriage had problems, but they were talking about them. They were working on them. And then Etta went out of town for a meeting. And when she got out of her normal, everyday routine, she found herself thinking about the problems in her life with a different kind of clarity. She wrote about what had become clear to her in her journal She wrote about what she wanted to change in her life, what no longer worked in her relationship. And then when she returned home, she brought her journal to her partner and she talked with him about the problems and about what needed to change. But at the same time, being back home and being in her normal routines felt comfortable to her. And she said that it was like sort of submerging into a hazy rut again, even though she knew she needed to escape it. She started to feel frantic and felt like she had to move quickly to make changes. Otherwise, she was just going to end up stuck again. And at the time, she tells me that she felt like she was two people, both the person who was comfortable and a little bit depressed in the rut where she was stuck, and also a person who couldn't tolerate the problems in her life for one more moment, a person who had to get rid of all of the comforts in her life in order to also get rid of the problems. She felt like she was two people and she didn't know which one was the truer self, which which of her two different hearts, wisdoms to follow. So she decided to look back over the journals from previous months and years, trying to understand how she had gotten to this split in her life and how she had gotten to where she was, trying to understand what was happening and which self was the more real self. And in that process, she discovered that a year earlier, at another out-of-town meeting, she had had an almost identical experience of discovering clarity. Her out-of-town journal entries that were written a year apart could have been written on the same day. The same problems were there. They were described the same way, almost word for word. The same clarity that was there a year ago, the same urgency for change that was there a year ago, had been completely forgotten. She didn't remember feeling that way, but it was written in her own handwriting, so she knew it must have been true. And she realized that though her soul was trying to grow, her daily life wasn't allowing her to change. And so she had to make a choice. She could go back into her daily life and know that she probably couldn't grow there, know that maybe next year at another out-of-town meeting, She would find clarity and urgency again, but wouldn't do anything about it. Or she could leave everything in her daily life and see what her soul needed to become. Sometimes when our lives need to change, we have to shake them up. We have to get some space from them in order to be able to create breathing room and see what new life can open within us. But what if it isn't us who's transforming, but it's somebody else in our lives who is transforming? What if we don't, we love the way things are, but they need something to shift? How do we allow them to change? And I want to say that this is some of the most challenging spiritual work we're called to do in our lives, is allowing other people to change and letting go. And it's also the most important work for us to do. For any of you who are deep in this place right now, the place of needing to let go of those you love so that they can grow, my heart is with you. I, I don't have kids yet, but I'm told by people who are parents that this is one of the most devastating parts of parenting. As those we love grow and change, they sometimes need new space from us, and it can feel like a death when a loved one pulls away. Or maybe their growth means that they need more intimacy from us. And that can feel like a death of our own freedom or our own independence. It feels like death because it is a death. It's a dying part of a relationship that has been outgrown. So, like our little leopard gecko friend up there. We might be able to see a new and beautiful thing growing when this is happening in our lives. But something else that we once saw as beautiful and important is still fading and drying up and cracking and falling away. So the leopard gecko deals with their skin coming off. They eat their skin. That's one way of grieving. Just eat the thing that's dying. There's other ways, too. (laughs) To grieve that thing that's dying, we need to allow ourselves to feel that pain, allow ourselves to cry or get angry. That's part of how we let go. I know that's part of why a lot of us come to church No, and... When I've gone through difficult things in life, sometimes the easiest way to cry is to just go to church and hear someone play Miley Cyrus' It's the Climb and just let it all out. Grieving asks us to feel pain and acknowledge it and trust that that pain has something to teach us if we want to return to joy eventually. And grieving asks us to say goodbye. That's why humans hold wakes and funerals and memorial services for one another, Because carrying ourselves through the ritual of goodbye helps us to heal. And it helps us to make space for something new. So if one of the things that you're wrestling with this morning is making space for someone else to change, do what you need to do to grieve. Take time and space to feel and to say goodbye. Maybe that means driving out into the middle of nowhere so you can cry with abandon because your parent is no longer recognizing you from dementia. Maybe that means that you take a day to say goodbye to the relationship you had with your kid and you write something down or you sing something or you burn something or release something so that you can make room for the new and different relationship you wanna have with your teen. Beyond grieving, for us to do the transformative spiritual work of allowing others to change, we also have to allow ourselves to change. We have to feel pain and say goodbye and then, and then explore something new in ourselves that will help our soul to unfold, help us find something beautiful and new within ourselves. Some people do that by taking a painting class, some people learn how to fix their own bike. You can sign up to be part of the hospitality team if you're an introvert. You can sign up for a silent retreat if you're an extrovert. Find some way to help your own soul unfold. Our environments can keep us stuck in patterns that prevent our growth and we all know that it's hard enough to do this on an individual level, let alone a society level. We can't end poverty by just giving to goodwill or making a meal at a homeless shelter. We can't end racism just by electing a black man to be president or even by building friendships across cultural lines. We can't end war by bombing people just because they've bombed other people. Our current political and economic and military and educational systems don't allow our country to change. Justice and peace won't come about just by having better people working in those same systems. Better leaders and policies can help. Getting better leaders into office and working to end oppressive policies is important and it makes people's lives better. But ultimately, the kind of real and lasting change that will bring about the world we dream about won't happen until we dismantle systems of oppression and rebuild something life-giving in their place. I don't really know how to do this. I'm a minister because when I was working in environmental policy for the state of Massachusetts in my previous career, I didn't feel like I was able to really dismantle big oppressive systems. I know that it's not as easy as telling my mom I don't love Twizzlers. I know it's not as easy as asking her if she'd maybe like some green dangly earrings next time. And it's harder than having a good cry at church or learning how to use new pronouns for the child who's come out to you. It's more disorienting than divorce. And it asks more of us than welcoming a stranger into your pulpit as a guest preacher on a Sunday. And it asks more of us even than all of the wrestling I know you're doing around ministry roles and staff roles and what the future of this congregation and your leadership looks like. But my friends, this is why religious communities exist, just for this. Churches come together every week because we know we become better people when we're with each other. We come together every week because we're invested in each other's transformation and I know almost none of you And I know that that is what is true for each of you And I am invested in your transformation and I would bet that some of you Maybe all of you are even invested in mine, even though I'm only here for one day In church, we can learn from each other how to let go and also how to grow because we know that It's important to offer food to somebody who's hungry, and it's important to work for a stronger social safety net for those wrestling with poverty, and it's important to imagine a new way of being where no one would be in poverty. That's what we do in church. Here we can be fully human with all of the tiny irritations and massive tragedies and all of the beautiful brokenness that is humanity. And here we can connect to the love that flows within and among and beyond us because our connections here help us to become more loving. Will you pray with me? Spirit of life and love and music, holiness closer than breath. For those of us who are wrestling like our leopard-gecko friend with changing ourselves, with letting go of something we've outgrown. May we find the strength to breathe and to stretch and to grieve what we're letting go of. For those of us who are wrestling most with Twizzler moments, with people who aren't allowing us to change or others who we are having a hard time allowing them to change. May we also grieve what is falling away. May we say goodbye. And may we make space for some new beauty to unfold within us and in our relationships. For those of us who are most wrestling with a society that seems intractable this morning, may we listen to the words we sang earlier from the civil rights era. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. Ain't gonna let no hatred, no injustice turn me round. When we feel like turning around, may we find someone else to sing with us. And continue to travel forward. May it be so. And amen.